Well, welcome to Bible study tonight. We're continuing our series entitled Living from the New Heart. We're halfway through, if you can believe it. It's a 10-part series, and tonight we're on part five. And tonight's study is entitled The Perfect Fit. As I go through the recap, why don't you open to the book of John chapter 15 and also Isaiah chapter 53. So John 15 and Isaiah 53. After I do the recap, we're going to go to those scriptures and do a little reading before we get into the rest of the handout. If uh, you'd like, you can go back and listen to previous studies in this series by finding the Liberty Dash Church podcast on Apple Music, Amazon Unlimited, and Spotify. And uh, you can get caught up there. So John 15 and Isaiah 53. Tonight's study, of course, entitled The Perfect Fit. We've been talking a lot about the new heart, but tonight we're going to talk about the body and the soul and the role that that plays in our new life lived from the heart. As believers, you've been invited to live from the heart. Now, if you remember a sermon series I preached a while back called Seven Lies Your Kids Will Believe Unless You Do Something About It, one of the lies that I said your kids will believe is that you should just follow your heart. Well, we know that an unbeliever's heart is desperately wicked and deceitful and no one can understand it. And so unbelievers, when they follow their heart, are simply following the patterns and pathways of sin. And we shouldn't follow our old heart, but as believers with a new heart, we can follow that new heart. We can live from it because God lives in it. He has made our new heart a perfect, and get this, permanent dwelling place. As much as it depends on God, once he moves into your new heart, he is permanently abiding there. There may be a way to evict him. We've talked a lot about that. Uh, there may be a way to lose your salvation. It's not going to happen by accident, but it may happen. But as much as it depends on God, once he moves in, he's staying. And so he has made your heart uh, a perfect and permanent dwelling place for himself. And we, as Romans 6 says, are perfectly obedient to the standard of righteousness from the new heart. We're not perfectly obedient to the standard from our hands and from our head, from our actions and from our thoughts, but we are indeed perfect from the heart. When we sin, when we have sinful thoughts and actions, it does not come from, nor does it affect, our new heart. As long as we remain repentant, as long as we say the same thing about sin that God says, then we can be assured that our new heart will remain soft and our conscience not become seared. We're all going to struggle in many ways. That's a biblical fact. James tells us so, that we all struggle. The problem is not the struggle. The problem is the practice. When it goes from struggling to practicing, that's when we have an issue. When we go from 
not wanting to do it to wanting to get better at it, that's when we have a real heart issue. And that's when the question needs to be asked, was our heart ever changed to begin with? And then finally, God is patiently working to conform us to the image of Jesus. That's what he's always been doing since the day you were saved. He has been patiently working to conform you to the image of his son. And as I say often, when we get home, we'll see the family resemblance. Paul said, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We don't see it yet. But when we see Jesus, we shall see him and we shall be like him. That's a wonderful hope. I look forward to that day when my Jesus I see. All right, let's go to uh, John 15. We'll read the words of Jesus. And then we'll go back to Isaiah 53 and read the words of Isaiah prophesying of Jesus. And it will come into play near the end of our study when we talk about bearing fruit on the second page there. So we'll set it up, we'll lay the foundation, and then we'll go through the handout, and then we'll make some application at the end. So John 15, starting at verse 1 through to verse 5. I'm in the New King James tonight. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You, the disciples, are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, and neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. I love verse 1 because Jesus says he is the true vine. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as the vineyard of God. But Jesus is the true Israel, the true chosen, the true seed. Abraham and his offspring is just the type and shadow of Jesus, the true seed, capital S, and his bride, his body, the church. Israel, the nation, in the Old Covenant was just a type and shadow. God wanted every tribe, every nation, every tongue, Jew and Gentile. He predestined a multi-ethnic family. He didn't just predestine national Israel. And so Jesus here says, I am the true vine, me. Not Abraham, not Israel, me. And my father is the vine dresser. My father is the one who established this whole thing and planted this whole thing, referencing creation here. And then he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, oftentimes, we understand this to mean Christians that, that aren't living a productive, fruit-bearing life. But truly, within its context, Jesus is talking about uh, Jews who don't believe 
He is the Messiah. He says, every branch in me, the true vine, see, we are all brothers and sisters of Christ. We're all his offspring. You can read that in Galatians, talking about the seed. But every branch, every person who does not bear fruit, God takes away. They are not part of the church. They are not part of the body. They are not part of God's true Israel. He takes it away. But the branches that remain and bear fruit, those are the ones God prunes that they might bear more fruit. That's you and I. That's those who have received Jesus. For as many as received him, he gave the power to be sons and daughters of God, to, to be united in one spirit with him. And so this is not a passage to say that God's going to cut you off if you don't bear enough fruit. If you're not bearing enough fruit, God is going to prune you. He is going to make you uh, fruitful. But those who don't want anything to do with Christ, who don't want to abide in him, who don't want to take him, serve him, believe in the one God sent, well, those are cut off. And so Jesus says, you must abide in me, for apart from me you can do nothing. So go back to Isaiah 53. This is a familiar passage. We read this at Easter a lot, but it's good to read all the time. We'll read eight verses and uh, see if you can pick out the theme I'm wanting, to, um, I'm wanting to highlight tonight. So uh, chapter 53, starting at verse 1. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. So the Messiah shall grow up before God as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground. Jesus said, I am the true vine. Here Isaiah is talking about this Messiah as a tender shoot, as a tender plant, as a root from dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That's why the Jews didn't, didn't believe him. He wasn't the attractive Messiah that they anticipated. He's a tender shoot. He's a root out of dry ground. So he was despised and rejected. Even though he bore our griefs and sorrows, he was not esteemed. We considered him to be smitten by God and afflicted by him. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was a lamb led to the slaughter. And as a sheep before shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Look at this, verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. 
So here, Isaiah is talking about a tender shoot, a root out of dry ground that would grow up. But this root, this shoot, this tender plant also knows what it means to be cut off, to be removed from the land of the living. And otherwise, in other words, this Messiah is going to die for the sins of the people. And so that's why Jesus says, I am the true vine, I'm the life giver. And anyone who abides in me, the Father prunes that it might bear much fruit. As I prayed, Jesus is worthy of the reward of his suffering. He is worthy of all the fruit we could bear to him and more because the punishment of our peace was upon him, because he was bruised for our iniquities, because, the, uh, because by his stripes we are healed. He did all this. The punishment of us all was laid upon him. And so he's worthy of all the fruit we could bear to him. Okay, so let's keep that in mind as we go through now uh, this handout and this study. So here's a question. Is my soul ready for heaven? We've talked a lot about our heart or our spirit, but what about our soul? Is my soul ready for heaven? I want you to know tonight that your personality or your soul, the seed of your mind, will, and emotions, your soul, is a perfect fit for heaven. There's no scripture that says you will receive a last-minute soul polish when you arrive at the pearly gates. When you get saved, your heart and soul, or sorry, when you got saved, your heart and soul were made ready for heaven. But your soul is like a mirror. While you live on this earth, your soul can reflect your new God-given self or it can reflect your old self. You have the choice. When you choose to reflect sin, you experience its consequences. When you choose to reflect righteousness, you experience its blessings. There's nothing wrong with the soul itself, the believer's soul. So it's not the soul that is the problem. The mirror is not the problem. It is simply reflecting the problem, and the problem is the power of sin. And we talked quite a bit about that last week. We talked about the power of sin. It's like a parasite. It latches on. It's all around us. And it latches on. It tempts us. It uh, entices us with um, our old way of living. Our old person, that old man, that old woman, is dead. And we are dead to sin and its power. But right now, the power of sin is still present in the world. There's coming a day when the curse will be lifted. There will be no more power of sin. Sin will be destroyed. And there's a difference. Jesus Christ on the cross defeated death, hell, and the grave. He defeated sin, but it is not destroyed until he comes again. Okay? And uh, there's a reason for that, of course, uh, because God is patient and he is worthy of the reward of his suffering. The moment he destroys sin once and for all 
human history is over and God's plan of redemption is complete. And so God loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God wanted more people to believe in him than just those who were alive when he sent his son to die. So does that make sense? The power of sin is still present, not because God is cruel and unusual and wants to torture us, but because he wants more to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Jesus is worthy of the reward of his suffering. That's why God is patient. That's why he's waiting so long. You've heard that phrase, slower than the second coming. It's, it's not a nice phrase, but people like to use it, you know, to say that Jesus promised he'd come back, and where is he? The Bible tells us they would be saying that. Where is he? He's waiting. He's patiently waiting because God loves people and wants none to perish. But there will come a day, of course, when the number of those who are to be redeemed will be complete, and on that day, Jesus will return. And when he returns, the power of sin will be finally destroyed. So our soul is not the problem right now. And we're going to talk in a few moments about our body. Our body's not the problem either. It's the power of sin that's the problem. And it's a parasite. It latches on. It entices us to act the way we used to act. Our old nature is dead and gone. It is buried with Christ and we are raised to newness of life. We share in his death. We share in his resurrection. We have a brand new life because we have a new heart from which to live but man, that power of sin is still in the world. And so that's the problem. Sometimes our, our soul, which is like a mirror, reflects the power of sin. It reflects our old self and the way we used to do things, the way we used to think, the way we used to act. But it can also reflect righteousness, the righteousness of God in Christ. And when we allow it to, we experience the wonderful blessings that come from that. You see, I talk a lot about how we're forgiven once for all for our sin. And for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And for those who are in Christ, listen to me, there is no spiritual consequence for sin. Christ, as we read in Isaiah 53, bore the spiritual consequences of sin for us. But man... Is there ever natural consequences for sin, right? There's natural consequences for sin. And that's why we, of course, want to avoid sin at all cost. Because though there is no uh, spiritual consequence, there is natural consequences. And then if we uh, continue on in sin and we go on ahead of Christ then our conscience becomes seared and there may very well be a spiritual consequence but like I said before that's possibly or very unlikely especially if you really want it especially if you really want it but I can't I can't read through the New Testament and come away with this idea that you can say a sinner's prayer and then live however you want. I, I, I can't get that. 
like naturally, I think that would be great, but that's not why Jesus died. He didn't die so that we could say a prayer and then live how we wanted. He died so that we would receive him and bear fruit to God. So our soul right now is heaven ready. If you were to die tonight or if Jesus came back tonight, you are ready. You say, but Pastor Matt, I struggle and I still fall and fail. Okay, but do you have a new heart? Because remember, you're perfectly obedient from the new heart. And God has made you new. There's a brand new self living now. And it's not you. It's not your old self. It's Christ living in you. And so if Christ were to return tonight, you're heaven ready. Your soul's ready to go. So what about the renewing of the mind, this thing we always talk about? We always talk about the renewing of the mind. Talk about how you, we always talk about how you have a new heart, but you have your old mind and you have your old hands, your old, um, your old habits that die hard. So what about it? Well, the fact is our mind, or sorry, the fact that our mind needs renewing shows, sorry, only shows that you don't know everything. It doesn't show that your soul is dirty. It just shows that you don't know everything. The Bible tells us that Jesus, even Jesus, had to grow and learn. Remember uh, in Luke chapter 2, usually only read again at Christmas time, Luke 2.15, after Jesus is uh, left behind and he amazes the scholars in Jerusalem, and his parents leave him, and then they find him, and then they go home, and there's very little spoken about his childhood and his early adult years, other than he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus himself had to grow. Jesus himself had to learn. He had to increase in wisdom and stature. And then uh, look at Hebrews 5, 8. And if you have it, you can read it. I'm almost there. Hebrews 5.8. Anyone? Okay. I have it. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Remember, Isaiah said he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Why? So that he might learn obedience. And so that we, as his followers, can never say, I've suffered more than Jesus. We're following him. He suffered. And through his suffering, he learned obedience. And then look at verse 9. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey. So Christ learned obedience through suffering. And after he learned it, he authored salvation and he gives it to all who would obey him. You see, Jesus didn't die so that you could obey yourself. He died so that you could obey him. And in obeying him, you could bear fruit to God. 
So the fact that your mind needs to be renewed isn't proof that you're getting dirty and clean day after day and isn't proof that your soul is 60% ready for heaven. No. The fact that you need to renew your mind shows that you just don't know everything yet. We talk about this all the time. Um, you have it all, you just don't know it. And you spend the rest of your life figuring out what you have. And it's amazing when we do, when we figure out what we have in Christ. We have it all. We're not getting more of it. We're knowing more of what we have. Now, I'm not opposed to using that kind of language, like, God, I want more. I mean, we don't have to edit every word that comes out of our mouth. Our language always falls short when it comes to the things of God. Uh, but we just need to understand when we say that kind of stuff, like, Lord, I want more of you, and I need you more, and I want a new measure for a new moment. We need to understand that, yes, we do have it all, but we just don't know it all yet. And the more we know, the more free we will be, the more power we will have, the more fruit we will bear. The need to grow and learn does not threaten our righteousness. We will be growing and learning all throughout eternity. The growing and learning never stops. We'll always be growing and learning. Remember that hymn, we'll understand it better by and by. There will be a sense in which all the mysteries of the universe will be revealed to us as we live throughout eternity's ages. And if it's true in eternity, when we are glorified, it's definitely true of us now, while we live in this body of affliction before heaven. So we need to continue to grow and to learn. But it doesn't threaten our status as the righteousness of God in Christ. We want to renew our mind. We must. We must change the way we think. Why? So that we can bear more fruit to God. It's not to get us more holy or more righteous and to get us heaven ready. That happened. It's so that we can bear more fruit to God. We set our mind on what? The things that are above not on the things here below, for the things here are only temporal, but the things above are eternal. We want to lay up for ourselves treasure in heaven. And that laying up for ourselves treasure in heaven is not actually for us. It's for God. It's fruit for him. It's glory for him, honor for him. Okay, so we talked about our soul. We talked about our mind uh, and our soul being the seed of our mind, will, and emotions. But what about our body? What's up with our body? Not only is your spirit acceptable to God, not only has he made your heart a perfect and permanent dwelling place for him, and not only has he made your soul perfectly acceptable, he has also made your body acceptable as well. Remember, your body and your flesh are not the same thing. We talked about this last week. Your flesh, the Greek word sarx, refers to the patterns and pathways of the world. That's the flesh. 
The flesh is not necessarily your body, not necessarily your skin and bones. Your flesh refers to the patterns and pathways of the world. Don't forget, the Bible tells us that your body was designed by the God of the universe. He called that creation and design very good. And Romans chapter 6 tells us that our bodies can actually be instruments of righteousness. Let's look at that. Romans chapter 6, verse 13. And do not present your members, your members here meaning your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, your mouth, the things you do with your body. Don't present your body as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace." And then look at Galatians chapter 2.20. Maybe you have it memorized and you can just shout it out. Do you know it? You'll know it once I start reading. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And look at this. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So here's the confusion. We read the word flesh there in English, and we think that that word flesh is the same as uh, other places, even in this same book, that tell us not to live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Not the same word. Some of your translations in 2.20 might say, uh, the life which I now live in the body. Anybody have a translation that says that? The life I live, I live in the body. Or sorry. And the life which I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. That word body is not the word sarks, which, refer, which refers rather to the patterns and pathways of the world. You see, if Christ is living in you, okay, if he's living in you, then you're not living in the flesh. You're not living in the old patterns and pathways. The two can't coexist in the same body. Now, like I said, with the soul, you can reflect the old way. You can be dragged away and enticed by sinful thoughts and desires, by temptations. But you don't live your old life anymore because Christ lives in you. Your body's designed by God, and he called it good. Your body can actually be an instrument of righteousness. And your body is actually the dwelling place of God. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So what? Honor God with your body. We are to love our bodies, care for our bodies. Um, our bodies let us down. 
As we get older, we realize that, don't we? They let us down. They fail us because they are not glorified yet. They will be one day, and that'll be a great day. I hope I have, I hope I have six-pack abs when that day comes. Uh, but until then, with joy, I carry on. But uh, we must love our body, care for our body. God created our body. He dwells in it. Uh, but as I said before, there is this parasite in the world that latches on. It influences our body. But there is nothing wrong with our body and our soul. God wholly embraces all of who you are, not just the spirit side of you. When God redeemed you, he redeemed all of you, not just your spirit. Yes, he gave you a new heart, but he also redeemed your soul and your body. He bought all of you. So this new life that we live is a life that is all Christ and all us. Every part of us and every part of him. You see, the fact is God does not want to replace you. He wants to embrace you. He wants to dwell in union with you through an unbreakable and unshakable bond. The Bible tells us that we are one spirit with Christ. He is actually our life. That's what Colossians 3, 4 says. Christ is our life. He's not just part of our life. He's not just in our life. He is our life. That's why that whole idea of putting Christ first is kind of futile. How can we put him first when he is everything? He's not just number one on a list of other priorities. He is everything. It's not Christ, then spouse, then children, then work, then church, then... No, it's Christ. Christ in my marriage. Christ in raising my children. Christ at work. Christ at church. Christ everywhere I go. He is our life. And we just read, the life we live in the body, we don't live on our own or to our own, but we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us, all of us, body, soul, and spirit. So it's a wonderful new life we get to live where it's all of Christ and all of us. So let's talk about this fruit then. Why is it that it seems, or why does it seem like we bear so little fruit? Well, first of all, God is the vine dresser. God is the one who inspects the fruit. God knows what he's looking for. I spent some time with James Duma at his orchard this summer. Some of us were up there for a picnic, James and Jen's place, walking through his orchard and his garden. And maybe you're a gardener. You know what you're looking for when you inspect the plants. And so he was showing me um, 
this really neat tree that he has. It's a pear tree that bears four kinds of pears on the one tree. And all the, the different species of pears have been grafted into the vine. And it was just really cool to actually see that. I've never seen that. I've read it in scripture about being grafted in, but I've never seen it. And it was just so cool to see. And as a vine dresser or as a, as a gardener, he's looking at that, that tree and he's inspecting it and he knows what to look for and what to expect when. And God, our master, our master vine dresser, knows what to expect. Remember I said he is patiently working with us to conform us to the image of Christ. He's patiently working with us that we might bear fruit and then more fruit. So first of all, God knows what he's looking for. If uh, we're looking at other people or we're looking at ourselves and expecting something, then we're going to disappoint ourselves. We have to trust God that he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's looking for and he knows how to get fruit from us. We need to yield to him. But as it pertains to our study tonight, how can we actually bear fruit to God when we, uh, when, we, when we don't think that he has accepted all of us? How can we bear fruit to God if we, if we think that he only likes one third of us, if he only likes our spirit, but he doesn't like our personality and our soul? And if he doesn't like our body and, and the things that, that we can do with that, how could we bear fruit if we don't think God has accepted all of us just as we are? How could we even keep something as simple as the, the greatest commandment, to love God with all we are, if we're convinced that God doesn't really love all of us? You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. How... How can we keep that commandment if, if we don't think God loves all of us? How can we love him with all of our being if we think that he only is interested in one-third of it? How can you live the life God has for you when you still believe that you have to keep denying yourself, bearing a cross, and dying every day? We'll talk about that in a moment. I think the simple answer is you can't. You can't bear fruit to God if you believe he doesn't accept all of you. You can't bear fruit to God if you don't believe he doesn't love all of you. You can't bear fruit to God if you think you have to keep denying yourself and taking up a cross and dying every day. You will be so distracted by and consumed by that that you'll never get a chance to bear fruit. If the vine, if the branches keep dying, they can't bear fruit. They have to be alive. Now Jesus said, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it cannot grow and bear fruit. We had to die. But if we keep dying, if we keep trying to kill ourselves, we're never going to bear fruit. Let's look at Matthew 16, 24. Let's go there. And Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Is what Jesus said here 
true? Yes. Should we take it literally? Absolutely. Verse 25, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Everything Jesus says, he says under the old covenant. Okay? And so he says this pre-cross. That's why he tells his disciples, if you're going to come after me, you got to take up a cross. You got to deny yourself and you got to follow me. I mean, I've asked this so many times. How many crosses did Jesus pick up? One. How many times did he walk to the place of death? Once. How many times did he die? Once. If we're going to come after Jesus, we certainly do have to deny ourselves. We certainly do have to take up the implement of death and follow Jesus to that place. But just as Jesus died once, so did you die once. The dying is done. There's no more dying to be done. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin daily. No. Died to sin once for all, that the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus died once, and so did you. We shared in his death. Now the dying is done. Christ perfected you once, and now the perfecting is done. Hebrews 10, 14, he has perfected for all time those who are being saved. How can Jesus perfect us? We already read it there in Hebrews chapter 5. He was perfected by his obedient suffering. And because he suffered, he was able to author salvation and bring salvation to all people. So if we're spending all of our time in, in life denying and dying and cross-bearing, we will have no time for fruit bearing. And Satan loves it when we're distracted by trying to deny ourselves, by trying to die again and again and again. It's like kicking a dead horse. We are literally dead to sin. We shared in Christ's death so that we might be raised to newness of life. The cross bearing, the denying, the dying, they're done. Now we can get busy Fruit-bearing. We don't have to cross-bear anymore. We can fruit-bear. The punishment of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. The punishment of our sin was laid on him. We don't have to punish ourselves. We mess up. We sin, yes. And we hate it because it's not who we are. And God's grace teaches us to say no to it and to get victory over it. But what we want to do now is get on to living a life that bears much fruit to God. So God isn't trying to break you. He's not trying to kill you 
or fix you. He's already done that. He's perfected you, body, soul, and spirit. God loves you, all of you. All of you is a new creation, and God embraces you. He has made you exactly who he wanted you to be. That's why you and God are a perfect fit. <laughs>